Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast. Every week we talk about what we did last week and what we're going to do this week. But since it is the first Friday of the month, we're going to do Friday questions. But first, uh, David was at GDC. Neither Gary and I or, or I went, but David was. So you want to give us a little two-minute report on GDC? Yeah, two-minute report. Well, we had a, an event on Monday night, which was really fun. Um, it was the mix event for indie developers. And we had a table with a couple of computers and a lot of people came by and said hi and played the game. And a lot of people loved it. And um, you know, we saw some, I think a few of you came by and uh, it was really fun to see you guys. And other than that, um, I, a huge amount of virtual reality stuff there I, I think i was there last year and it feels like it, it's now at least half or more of everything that was on the floor was virtual reality related so i think that's the trend we're going to see for the next few years until we get to 100 percent of people get really sick um there was also does, does vr make you sick david um it does sometimes <laughs> actually did a couple really fun things in vr that was really impressive um the, the um there's a, a headphone that was a Kickstarter headphone um, that was, you know, does uh, spatial positioning of sound above and below your head and behind it and everything was very cool. It's like there's a lot of elements that when they all come together, it's going to make it a lot better, but they're all kind of like all a cart. They're not really integrated into each other's hardware. Uh, there was eye tracking that was very cool um, on one of the booths and um also saw Randy Farmer and Chip Morningstar had Habitat up and running using Commodore 64 and, and an emulator on another computer. In VR? Uh, no, unfortunately not. In, in VR as it was in, in 1985, yeah. <laughs> Just 2D on a screen. Um, but um, I had a lot of fun. Um, Scoot Talks. Um, I have not know why they charge so much money for this show. It's just ridiculously expensive. So, it's like seventeen hundred dollars. Yeah, I think it was two thousand. If I had gotten a ticket for just the you know the all purpose the all access pass, and someone was saying ironically, was that did you tweet that? I saw someone ironically saying how they went to a a session on um, making super low budget games, and you had to have a two thousand dollar ticket to get into <laughs> the. So um, I sure hope they figure out a way to to bring it back to what used to be for people who are indies and don't have huge companies backing them to be there. Yeah, it is, it is, it is really expensive. I got a free ticket from a friend, so I was able to, I wouldn't have paid for it. Even the, even going to the expo was like $250 just to walk the floor. Yeah. That's a lot for that expo. Yeah. It, it wasn't that great. It was that. a packed house though. Yeah, it was pretty, it looked like it was, um, I, I now realize the best time to go to the expo section is first thing in the morning after party nights because <laughs> everyone's all hung over from the night before. So, or, or the morning of Nintendo Switch launches. Uh, yeah, right. So um, it was fun. I, I sure hope we can do some kind of um, a postmortem next year. Yeah, that, w- that would be fun to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we can. Too early now. Not ready. It's not post yet. Or or the top top ten reasons Thimbleweed Park failed horribly. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get into Friday questions, and I think uh, David is going to read the questions. I will. Gary and I both really wanted to do the reading, but but David stepped <laughs> D- up David and he's really like, no, no, David wanted to let me read them. Okay, first question is from Rodrigo. Will you allow to have English audio with English subtitles? That's the best way for those of us who have English as a second language. Uh, yeah, you will. You will have to have. You can listen to the English audio, and then you can um, display the English subtitles, or the French, or the German, or the Spanish. So any of the other languages, you can display the subtitles while you listen to the English audio. We only have English audio right now. We could do um, other audio in different languages, but we just didn't want to, we just couldn't afford to do all the recording, so we didn't. But yeah, you you can do that. Okay, and 
or you can turn off the audio too if you want. I mean, there was there was someone at the mix event on Monday who insisted on playing it the way the old games were. So he turned oh, off the, the voice, audio. turn off the voice, and turn on the English subtitles. There was actually a bug um, a couple of weeks ago where somebody, one of the testers, realized you could turn off the audio and the text. Ah. So the the characters would just sit there and move their mouths, but <laughs> absolutely nothing would show up on the screen. There was no audio and. And they flagged that as Interesting. a bug. So. Yeah, that is a good bug. Uh, okay, next one's from Ben Black. In Thimbleweed Park, what is the largest item you can put in your pocket? Uh, the answer to that, uh, having drawn the items you can put in your pocket, is, this is not a spoiler, a chainsaw. Is that the largest item that we have in the game? A chainsaw, or there's some postal packages, which I, maybe a chainsaw could fit in, but it appears that the chainsaw is actually the largest single thing that you could fit in your pocket. I think it'd probably be the most uncomfortable thing, too, yeah. especially if you put, turn it on. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it can run while it's in your inventory. I think that was a big mistake of ours. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll fix that in, in the special edition version. I know Ron wants to do a special edition version. The next one is from Emmanuel Velez. Is there any chance people who missed the chance to fund or back the game will get another chance to score any of the art books and other loot that the backers are getting? The, the answer to that, I believe, is yes, right, Ron? Yeah, some of the stuff. I mean, some of the stuff is exclusive uh, to backers, um, like the signed boxes. I mean, you can't get a signed box, but we will we will be selling the boxes. We don't know if the ones we're going to sell, they may not include all the cool stuff inside that we gave the Kickstarter backers. Um, the art book, you know, will certainly be able to buy. So some stuff you will and some stuff you won't. We haven't totally figured that out yet. And, and right now you can buy t-shirts, but they're not going to be the backer t-shirts. Yeah, like the backer t-shirts, like you will not be able to buy anywhere once those come out. Although you can buy just normal Thimbleweed Park t-shirts. In fact, you can buy normal Thimbleweed Park t-shirts and mouse pads and, I believe, decks of cards right now. No, I don't think you can buy the decks of cards okay. yet. But you can buy the um, mouse pads and the t-shirts. Yeah. How about the penny pins? And the pins, yeah. Next question is from Patrick Spacek. How many backgrounds and characters have you made for this game in total? Okay, so I did a count just the other day to answer this question, and I've counted for the environments... There are 99 environment, actual unique environments. You know, those are scrolling environments, a lot of those, and those are not counting the close-ups or other special screens we have. So there's well over 100, you know, quite a few more over 100 if you count those. And then as far as the animating characters in the game, uh, I'm counting a couple of, I'll say, non-human things. There are 52 of those. And not all of them have speaking roles. I think there's 47 speaking 47 roles in the game. Roles. Okay. The next one is from Gifip. Gary, did you do some special graphic art for the opening credits, or did you handle them more movie-like? Um, the answer to that is we did not do any special graphic art opening for the game. There's a number of things that we did that are using screens that we had sort of set up, but as far as credits goes, those just all roll at the end of the game more movie-like. Next one from okay, we got another good one. Give, Jeez. give up, give up, and just say GV, man. GV, okay. Capital G, small V. There are a number of common things between Monkey Island and Thimbleweed Park, like the old voodoo lady, a mansion, a Vista lookout post, the circus, a forest. Even the tinfoil hat guy looks a bit like Captain Smirk, at least to me. I think he lives in the forest, doesn't he? About the Pigeon Brothers, the Fettuccini Brothers. Maybe there are a lot more of coincidences. What do you think of it? I know it may not, maybe not intended, but I want to know your opinion. I, I think it has to do with the fact that Ron and I are lazy and we just think of the same stuff over and over again. So, um, uh, you know, all of these things, if they're kind of recurring in games that we've done before, I think they're, they're I'm going to say there's some similarities, but only similarities because we, you know, create stories that, you know, kind of resonate with us. And so they have some similar elements. There are also a few that are that really are kind of a um, shout out to the old games, like the mansion. I think. Yeah, the mansion is. I think the forest as well. I mean, the forest in Thimbleweed Park was was definitely modeled after the forest in Monkey Island. Next question from Becky Comics: There are a lot of magic tricks in your games. Ransom has the Gypsy Curse. 
while Chuck is a walking dead, there are ghosts everywhere, etc. Do you believe in magic or paranormal paranormal activity yourself? Did you experience something strange or scary that couldn't be explained logically? Um, from my perspective, no, I don't. I don't necessarily believe in ghosts or magic or. I mean, I believe there are things we don't understand in this universe, but I believe most of them have scientific explanations. I am not really a big believer in the supernatural or, um, in any case, um, uh, you know, I don't, I think I said before, I, you know, I don't need to believe in superheroes to draw a superhero comic book. Um, I, I probably am more of a believer in some of this stuff and Zach definitely shows that I mean, there, there is a combination of me wanting some of that stuff to be true and maybe believing some of it might be true. Um, in, in this game, I think all of the ghosty stuff and everything was already in the design before I came on. So that was really a Ron and Gary thing. Yeah, I think doing supernatural things in games, it just gives you a little more freedom because you don't have to stick to you know reality for everything you're doing. So I think that's why... That's why I tend to add that to games, is I just think it can be a little more interesting. Yeah, it's my favorite parts of these games, actually. I like them. I'm not sure if I believe in, in sentient meteors or not, though. <laughs> so is that that's your line, David? <laughs> okay, yeah, that is. Especially if they're purple. Um, Maurizio asks, Well, the backgrounds have flickering light, like in Monkey 2. I guess it was easy to do it with index palettes, but now... It is more difficult. Did you simulate that effect? I think it makes rooms feel alive. Thanks. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's actually more difficult. I mean, doing the the palette based color cycling was actually quite complicated. You know, we do a lot of our lights in the game just using shaders. So there's you know programming, and it's actually you know cast light on stuff. But there are some things where there's you know large chunks of the background that are changing that. You know, Mark just, he just went through and drew, you know, several different frames of the flickering lights and we just cycled through the images. That's the kind of stuff that we couldn't have done, you know, back in Maniac Mansion of Monkey Island, just because we didn't have the disk storage to create all these different images to animate um, lights where we really have that uh, today. There, there are places where um, there might be like a fluorescent light that flicks on and off. And like like Ron said, there's a different background version, but we also will have a, um, a sound effect and a you know an actor light that will trigger at the same time. So the actor under that light will be lit differently. Yeah, and some of the light is really just um, transparent, uh, transparent um, light shapes that we just flick on and off. So like, a, like an alpha layer. Yeah, like an alpha layer for that stuff. So. So I, I would say that it's it's certainly easier to do that stuff today in a much more sophisticated way. What we were doing with flickering lights in the old games was was very very crude compared to what we can do today. There's also like in the circus screens, there are each light bulb is a se is a separate object, and each one has its own script that turns it on and off at a specific time based on um, other scripts that are running. And so you might have like, you know, a couple hundred of those objects plus another couple hundred stars that are flickering based on their changing their alpha levels. And so that stuff we couldn't have done before just because it's all, you know, brute force. And now it's, you know, it's just really easy. Okay, next question from Gift again. And he asks, David, how was your education in humanistic psychology influenced? How has it influenced your work as a game developer? Um, I think that not a whole lot, actually. Um, it, it's really my, you know, there's a connection with what we were just talking about earlier with my interest in paranormal, paranormal and all that. So there games I do tend to have that element in it. Um, and maybe helping me <laughs> get along with other people on the team better, but that's about it. Peter Borderson asks, which off-the-shelf tools which you otherwise would have been forced to code yourself, who saved you the most time during the production of the game. Uh, it could be project management tools as well. I reckon the available software is more, much more vast now than in 1987, where more stuff had to be invented from the ground up. Well, certainly things like Photoshop. You know, those early days of Maniac Mansion, and we wrote our own graphics editors 
you know, and everything. I mean, almost everything had to be had to be written. I think you know, Chip Morningstar even wrote the assembler that we used for the sixty five hundred two code and the Commodore sixty four. So, you really had to build almost all your tools yourselves. And then you know, things like D Paint came out, and you know, that was of course something that we used um, back then. But today, there's just a lot of tools. You know, there's things like Photoshop for art. Uh, you know, David uses um, Audacity to edit sounds. So, you know, which is an open source or I don't think it's, it may not, I don't know if it's open source, but it's certainly a, you know, a free tool you can use to do sound effects editing and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's BB edit for, for text editing. For text, yeah. And that's, that's a paid program, but it works really well. And then we, for splitting up our, our textures. We use texture packer. Texture packer. For and, that stuff. And um, there aren't, I mean, there's only a couple of tools that we had to write, right? that you wrote yeah there was the tool there was wimpy that was a tool that does all the object layout and i really had to write that because it's so game specific you know you really couldn't you know have an off-the-shelf tool that did that kind of stuff but i think we try to use as many off-the-shelf tools as we can just so we're not wasting time writing stuff i mean even like the the bug tracking software you know that's a, a commercial tool that we use to track all the bugs where i think we track bugs you know, back at Lucasfilm on little slips of paper, if I remember right. Yeah, and then there's Slack, which really is a project communication tool. And then uh, the only other tool that I remember using that you created was the the um, art tool, uh, the animation tool, Compi. Oh, Compi, yeah. Which is really more, it's less to create animations and more to kind of maybe confirm that they're okay and adjust the layers. Yeah, it's a really crappy tool. <laughs> That's probably the crappiest tool that I created on this project. Yeah, we just did enough so that it would work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's Slicey also. Yeah, that's a commercial tool. Yeah. Which they don't make anymore. Really? Yeah, yeah. They I, I contacted the company like a year ago because um, I noticed it didn't work with some of the features of the brand new Photoshop. And so I had contacted them and asking them if they were ever going to update it. And they're like, no. No, no, but nobody bought it, so we're not, uh, <laughs> we're not doing it. But I just find it to be the most, the most amazing tool I have ever used for this kind of stuff. And, so. and that's just so people know that, so we can, we can have Photoshop, and it goes in, and based on the name, way we name the layers, it can break them out into individual PNG files. Yeah, but it's really smart about how it does it. Photoshop has a built-in uh, function that does that, but it's just nowhere as sophisticated as Slicey's ability to do that. Well, the big thing there was you could also define what part of the element of the layer gets exported or the group. Um, okay, next one, Hori asks, he said, this is not a stupid question. What type of wine and cheese should be consumed along with Thimbleweed Park? We should, we should do a little wine and cheese pairing menu for when yeah. you play Thimbleweed Park. Well, I was thinking it should be thim, you know, thimbleberry wine, of course. Oh, right. And head cheese. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll get a picture. We'll get a picture of you sipping some thimbleweed, thimbleberry pie, and eating head cheese while you play the game. <laughs> um, okay, Andreas, another question for David. During development, when the three of you disagreed about design choices, how often did you win the argument because Gary and Ron were intimidated by your mustache? Well, I don't think my mustache had anything to do with it because you know we almost always were on Skype or Slack, and there was. They couldn't see my mustache. Well, yeah, but we know it in our minds, David. And we're right, totally well, intimidated yeah. by it. And I, and I think the mustache was giving you this certain level of confidence that was coming. It was coming through. So, right. Um, I I don't remember. You've always had a mustache, right? I'm pretty much close. I think I think there was like a short. Well, I mean, I think ever since I since you met, met you, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think mustache. it was my my um right after high school. You know, it's like my freedom from high school where you couldn't do facial hair added it and just kept it most of the time it was back in your hippie days yep right after that i had a full, I had a full beard i had a my mustache went you know fu manchu style all the way down um, <laughs> really yeah at one point <laughs> and then during zach i just stopped shaving because i figured i i'd save five minutes a day and that would i could get the game out a, a couple of days earlier and it actually worked <laughs> um the the overall question though about like you know how arguments and i just don't re really remember heated arguments about design stuff um 
between we, the three of us? Yeah, no. yeah I mean, we, we, so we might agree, and then one of us might come back afterwards and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and here's why I, I think we could do this instead, or other suggestions. And See, I think, uh, you know, and this goes back to just having worked together for, you know, a long time. I think people who work together for a long time, and if they want to keep working together, they kind of get into a rhythm of that, and they tend to have a process that sort of works for them. I don't, at least certainly in our case, there's not a lot of arguments that I can recall. And the other thing, I, I feel like um, for for any game like this game, I feel like there's like the keeper of the vision. You know, like there's a person who is the final authority on what what should be or should not be part of the game. And you know, I think Ron and, and Gary are are that in this case. Uh, maybe Ron a little bit more yeah, in think, terms I of design. Ron, it, I, well, I think when push comes to shove, it comes down to Ron. But I think we've all been pretty even-handed and fair. Yeah, I mean, I've never felt like I can't make my thoughts known. And sometimes, you know, Ron says, no, I just don't want to go that way. And, and, and that's okay. I just stop. Yeah, there were some cases, though, where, you know, you would come back to me and say, no, I, I really disagree with this, you know. And even like a couple of days later, you know, mm -hmm. maybe while you were in the process of coding it up, you'd come back and say, you know what, I really disagree with this. Yeah. You know, so there were some cases, but I don't think there were ever arguments. Right. You know, there, there was no name calling, you know, in that process. Next question is from Huffman. With a similar budget, how much faster could you produce another game based on the same platform, given that you won't need to develop and experiment with tooling as much? You know, I don't think that it's so much the tools. You know, it's like we definitely spent maybe three or four months at the beginning of the project building up the engine. But I think, you know, if we do another point and click game, I think it'll go a lot faster, but it's not because of the tools. It's just because of the process that we've learned. You know, we've really learned, you know, how to use those tools and we've, you know, learned just how to organize our code and how to organize dialogue and all of these other things that we really had to figure out on this project. And I think, you know, I think you definitely saw that with, you know, like step from Maniac Mansion to Zach McCracken mm -hmm. to Monkey Island. You know, it wasn't so much that we had better tools, but we just, we were just more experienced at using those tools and using all the techniques that we had. Yeah, well, it was a combination of, of learning the syntax, understanding what the best solution is, um, looking at, uh, we look at Ron's code and say, oh, that's a cool trick. And still that, then we, we'd have code we could reuse. Um, we had functions which we would use for various things and then could reuse those later. Um, a huge one for me was, um, you know, having a, finding a bug, thinking it was my bug and it turning out to be an engine bug. And, you know, having to get down to the you know, really simplest case to find out whether it was me or, or the engine. And once those engine bugs were fixed, then there's a lot less time spent with with bad code unless it was my code but how, i don't know how do you you know a month less a couple months less time well we spent basically two years building this game like you know two two years and three months by the time that it ships and i think that if we were going to like go do another point and click game right after this i think we could probably get it done probably at least six to nine months sooner and because we're all experienced with this yeah. system yeah Right. Yeah. So I would say you know it could easily be a year and a half project rather than a two year project. So the, well, the question is really would 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 we end up taking exactly the same amount of time and just put it into more more you know, refinement or features or animations or things like that? I, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, we're forced to quit because Ron says this is the date we're quitting because we could keep dinking around. Well, we're forced we're forced to quit because we have no more money. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that. <laughs> I mean that is I mean that is kind of ultimately the you know the the big factor in everything is that you know we've we've gone through all the Kickstarter money and you know also the money we raise through you know private investment and all that stuff so we, we basically don't have any money to keep working on the game but you know nor that nor that I think we'd want to I think you know people want the game they want to play the game I think we want to be done with the game so I think we just we we want to do it but I, I do feel that you know we've been working on this for you know a little over two years i do feel that that was too long it's like our original you know kickstarter uh, projection was back in june 
And I think that would have been more of the ideal project, which was about a year and a half. And I think if you know we were going to do another point-and-click game, I'd really want to say, okay, let's get this done in a year and a half. I was looking at some of the art. I think um, definitely our artist Scott Faster and doing the rooms and doing all that too. So that would yeah. maybe take less time. Yeah, Mark was definitely a lot faster at the end than he was at the beginning. But I think that's true of our programming as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know, take next time and take a month maybe to do the whole game. A month and a half. Month and a half, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next question. Uli Kusterer asks, "How old were you folks when you first when you did your first point and click adventure? Are you the same person today that you were back then? If not, did you regress to that personality during Thimbleweed Park?" Uh. Well. I was probably about 25, I think. I don't remember. Ron was a little bit younger than me, and you were a little bit older, David. Yeah, I was like about 35, probably. Yeah, I, I was I was 21, or um, a maniac mansion. As far as the question, are you the same person? Um, probably in essence, yes, but totally not. I mean, it's hard hard to answer a question like that. I mean, there's definitely a part that's the same. I think my humor is probably very similar. I, I, there are probably times when, I think when you do a game, like especially a game where, and I had that experience with Maniac Mansion too, because I came into a game where um, the core of the design was was there already. So it was like, how do you, how do you mesh with the humor that is being laid out and the feeling and everything? You blow up a hamster. Yeah, well, that was that was probably how I got corrupted during that game <laughs> <laughs> you know you, you kind of have to kind of me- mesh with the rest of the team and, and how how the humor is being set up and the, and the tone and everything else you know taking following the lead set by say ron in his writing to try to match it so it feels like it's seamless so i, I don't know if i reverted back to myself back then but i had to adapt to how how the game was being laid out I mean, the only thing I might say in terms of reverting is it kind of reverted back to sort of working with the two of you guys, and it was sort of felt like no time had really passed for me. So that was the thing that felt the most like the old days to me, is just working with the two of you guys and it just being kind of, as I said, this rhythm. Okay, next question from Sushi. When platforms like Steam and GOG sell your game with seasonal promos, launch offers, and discounts, is that their sole decision, yours, Turbo Toy Box, or a combination? Uh, that is almost always our sole dis- discretion about you know anytime we're doing sales or launch discounts or any of that stuff. That is something that we're you know basically deciding all of that stuff ourselves. There are you know there are I know like um, Europe has some laws um, and there are some similar laws in the U.S. where you know, people cannot dictate the sale price, you know, so if, so if you're a company and you're selling, you know, a game into GameStop, for example, you can't tell GameStop what to sell the game for, right? They can sell it for anything they want. I mean, you've got the price you sold the game to GameStop for, but if they want to sell it for less than that, they're welcome to do that. So you can't really control that. It's a little bit different with downloadable stuff because Steam isn't really buying the game from us. Um, you know, they're, they're just kind of taking, you know, a 30% cut of the sale. So we don't quite run into the same antitrust laws, but I know that Europe has some, um, some tighter laws and in theory, places like Steam and GOG could sell our game for any price that they wanted in Europe, but, but they just don't. So for the most part, we have complete control over the price of the game. They'll do something like, you know, we're going to, we're going to do a, a fall special. Do you want to participate in that? Yeah, they'll ask, but, but they, they, won't, they won't put you in it without your approval. And then you, you also have the choice of setting the, the discount. Yeah, that's, that's all stuff that we control, yeah. Right. Andrew asks, is this your first project working in an international team? And if so, what do you think is your greatest takeaway you've learned from the experience? Um, you know, it's it's been really good working with people all over. I think the hardest thing uh, has been just the time zone issues. 
you know, that we have, you know, maybe a two to three hour overlap with some people where we're both awake at the same time. And I think that's been a little bit of a challenge is just making sure that, you know, you, you have everything all set up before you go to bed because, you know, somebody else is going to wake up and going to have to do things, you know, based on instructions that you gave them or vice versa. So, but other than that, I don't know that it's really been any different than, you know, working with, uh, you know, people all based in the States, for example. Yeah. As long as you're, you know, we were all in the same tools using Slack, you know, that kind of helps. Yeah. Slack has been invaluable in doing things. You know, I, I can't imagine doing this, you know, all over email. The fact that we can all come together, it's kind of made everybody on the project, you know, really feel like a team. Yeah. So I, that was my experience. So I, I think I've never, I've, I've worked with in the last game I did, the Rubeworks game, I did work with some, with translators, but it wasn't the intense, you know, day by day thing that we had on this one. So this is, it was actually really nice. Okay, Dean asks, overall, how happy are you with the finished project? And if you can go back two years and talk to your past selves about the project, what, if anything, would you say? I mean, a bunch of people ask similar questions like, you know, what do we think? Um, are we happy with the game? All right, so why don't, why don't we each pick one thing that we, we would have told ourselves not to do or to do? Um, you know, I would have maybe have tried to land on you know what we usually when you're at the end of the project is when you should be starting it and so from my perspective we spent a bunch of time at least on in some of the graphic stuff trying to figure out what you know what approach we were going to take and so i probably would have liked to have had a clearer idea of what it was going to look like when we first started and that didn't happen as i was saying for about six months I think I would have just told myself that it's going to be fun and have a great time. Well, you believed it was going to be hell and you were going to have a horrible time, David? <laughs> no, I just, I think there was a little bit of, you know, like, can we do this again? You know, did I lose it? Um, there was a little bit of wondering whether um, we would mesh in the way that we did and, and whether, you know, can you, can you go back to where, to the experience that we had way back then, was it recapturable? And so just saying, yeah, you know, you're going to have a great time. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I think for me, the one thing that I would have done differently is I would have licensed a sound engine. You know, when we first started the project, I looked at sound engines like, you know, like FMOD and whether we should license them. And it was like $6,000 to license FMOD. And I just thought, oh, that's like way too much money. I'll just use the, you know, the sound engine that's a part of the SDL. But I think I definitely regretted that. I think we have spent more than $6,000 just in, you know, programmer hours, you know, dealing with the engine and trying to change the engine and do all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I would have, I would have licensed a good sound engine. And there were been features that we kind of wanted that we could have done where we didn't, we weren't able to do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. Okay, Johnny Walker asks, Gary and David, what's Ron like as a project leader to work with? Utter hell. <laughs> do, you want me, do, you want, do you want me to go away while you guys answer this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, I want to answer this a little differently is because um, I have my, my picture of working with Ron as a project leader really once before, which was Maniac Mansion. Every other game, the other game we worked on together was Indiana Jones and really wasn't a specific project leader. It was kind of more equally shared, I think. And so I'm comparing you as a project leader now to how you were back then. And I think I was continuously impressed with how much you've learned and matured and gotten better and, and just your design sense getting polished and all that. So it was that was... For me, it was. I feel like I learned a lot, um, and I really enjoyed. Well, it. I was I was twenty one back then. Yeah, it's true, and and you've learned a lot, and you've been doing this for you know continuously during the whole time. And, and yeah, like thirty years. Yeah, I think of the three of us, Ron is the only one who's worked continually in games since mm -hmm. uh, since those days. I mean, I think David and I have both gone off to do other things, and we kind of came back to do this because it was something we wanted to do. But definitely, I was not working on games for the last 25 years, you know. 
Right. And I had to trust Ron to know where the game industry has gone and moved to and, you know, to, so that we could, you know, capture the, the essence of the outset, but also make it fit with current, with today's tastes. So I, I thought it was great. The only, the, let's see, do I have anything negative? You got to say at least one negative thing. Say negative thing. Um, probably, you know, you're, you wanted to do maybe take on too much yourself. There are times where I think if you had given something away if you, earlier, it would have probably been easier on, on yourself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true. There's some stuff I don't think you could have given away, but um, but yeah, overall. Yeah, I wish I wish we'd had one more programmer on the project. I think things would have been a little bit easier with one more programmer. Certainly, up until when we got Chase, Ron was handling all of the producer stuff. Yeah, having a producer from almost day one would mm -hmm. have also been a huge, huge benefit. Right. So maybe a little bit. Have staffed up a little bit differently. Yeah, because bringing on a producer, you know, midway through, or you know, in our case, actually towards the end of the project, there was so much, you know, having to ramp somebody up on what's happening, right? And not just logistics of you know where spreadsheets stored, but just just the whole vibe and the feel of the game and everything was was a lot more difficult than if the producer had just started, you know, from the very beginning with all of us. They would just intrinsically know all of these things, so. Would you also have brought on a writer earlier? No, I think the writer was probably about the right time. I think there was a lot of setting of foundations and stuff that had to happen. I would have liked to have brought on a sound effects person much earlier than right. we did. Right. Yeah, I, I was spending a lot of time just putting in placeholder sound effects, not realizing that those were the sound <laughs> effects. We're going to ship with them. <laughs> and, and now you have to join the sound effects union. <laughs> Um, okay, next question is from Vegetamon. Vegetamon. We always struggle with that name every single every single time we do this. Vegetamon. Um, what is everybody's current wrap-up process this month as you finalize the game launch? So what are, what are we all doing over this next month before the game launches? Well, um, uh, let me see. Uh, from my perspective, I've been doing some you know, playtesting and translation stuff. I know the Russian translation is coming up, and I imagine I'll get started on that sometime soon. I'll sort of coordinate that with Jen. Um, and then just, you know, starting to look at some of the Kickstarter materials as well. For for me, that's kind of, I think, where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm mostly done. I have a couple more bugs, and there might be one or two more that come in. I, I hope that I could do something with the um, arcade um, once that comes back again. Um, but otherwise, I'm I'm like probably ninety five percent done with with my part of it, unless something comes up. Yeah, for me, it's still uh, getting the engine programming stuff done because we, you know, focused on getting the Xbox uh, version into cert, and so now there's just kind of a handful of little bugs that are kind of related to you know things like windowing and minimizing the game and you know all this stuff all the all the not fun stuff that we leave till the end so i'm just doing um doing a lot of that a lot of that kind of work and then i need to get uh the game i do have it all working with steam the game communicates with steam and it does all the achievement stuff in steam but i haven't actually uploaded a version to steam so that's kind of my goal over the next um over this weekend is to get the game so it's actually distributed through Steam and the testers are actually downloading them from Steam and all those things and then I have to do the same thing for GOG as well and so it's just a lot of kind of wrap-up work like that for me. And then there's other people on the team that are doing a few things too. The translators are, are pretty much done, right? Yeah, they're all except, done. Except for Russian. Yeah, except for Russian. Yeah, because he, he just started like a week ago. How about in, in the area of press and all and the, the marketing end? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of press stuff, you know, at this point to do, and you know, marketing type type things. Um, Jen is doing most of that, so I don't do a whole lot of that of that kind of stuff. I remember um, when back in the old days when we finished this before we had a lot of people in in the games group or game Lucasfilm Games or LucasArts, um, the designer of a game or project leader was responsible for coordinating with 
ports with other companies, whoever did the ports to other platforms and translations. And I remember feeling like, like it would take a year to two years of being on the same game when she thought you were finished with it. And it was really, it could be painful because you really wanted to move on to something else. Um, now I think a lot of that's going to be done concurrently, but not completely. So you still have you know months to do of other things after it launches. Well, I think though one of the big things that that happens today that didn't happen then is when the game is released, there's just a whole lot of community management that has to happen. And then, you know, I'm not talking about the Kickstarter community, but just all the people that are going to show up on your Steam forums that you have to deal with and, you know, tech support issues you have to deal with and patching issues. And those are the types of things that we didn't really deal with directly. You know, people would mm -hmm. send in letters and, and, and things like that. And, you know, we had a whole tech support department that dealt with tech support issues, but that wasn't something that we really ever had to deal with as developers. And we're certainly going to have to deal with that stuff a lot more on Thimbleweed Park. And it could be a lot of it if, you know, depending on how, how many people start doing and probably more, more early on is, you know, things come up with, with configurations we never thought about yeah. or didn't test. Yeah, so I think there's going to be a lot of work with that kind of stuff that we'll be doing. Okay, the next question is from Orkin Agutbill. What would you like to see in the Thimbleweed Park Deluxe Edition remake that will be done 18 years from now? What do you not want to see? Well, I guess I, I don't want to see anything. I'm just not a fan of remaking games at all. It's like, I think we should make sure that the games are playable on modern platforms, but I just do not think that the game should be changed at all. I think they, they should exist, to, you know, how they were created. So I'm not a, not a fan of remakes. So you don't think George should change the Star Wars movie to have um, the other guy shoot first? No, I think that was ridiculous. I, I mean, I would love to get my hands on the original Star Wars movies. Because I would, I, I mean, I would love to watch Star Wars again, but I refuse to watch the the remade versions of it. I just won't do it. So until I can actually get the original Star Wars movie, I just, I have no desire to see it. Okay, Brian Small asks, why did you pick March 30th as a release date and not March 31st? Uh, well, that's an easy question. March 31st is a Friday, and Fridays are really not very good days to, to launch games. I think if you launch a game on Friday, you know, you want, you know, you've spent a whole lot of time getting the press all lined up. You've given press preview builds of the game so they can write their reviews and all that stuff you really want to come out like on the day that you launch the game so this is all this pr coordination that happens and friday is just a really crappy day to launch a game and i think if we you know if we really could have our way we probably would have launched it like on you know tuesday or wednesday so thursday was kind of the latest that we could do it without it becoming friday yeah it usually happens at thursdays and friday's the next day so Okay. Is that always true? I think it is, usually. <laughs> There's some months where I think it's different, but definitely in March. Um, okay, Nathan says, in regards to the engine, how diligent were you in keeping the core code separate from the Thimbleweed-specific code? Oh, very, very diligent about that. That was one of the things that um, I'm super particular about. And I think that goes back to working on the scum engine where the maniac mansion version of scum, there was so much maniac mansion code that was just embedded in the engine code. And then when we went on and did, you know, Zach after that, and then loom and monkey Island and all these other games, it was just a real pain to pull all that stuff out. And so I'm, I'm really diligent about no game code ever appearing in the engine. So what's an example of game code? Are you talking about the scripts or is there some specific actual real code? Uh, well, I mean, I guess an example of that kind of stuff would be, you know, kind of like embedding, you've, you know, we have these five switchable characters, right? And it would have been much easier if we just would have embedded the fact that you were, you know, Ray was the first character and Reyes was the second character. 
but you know, I went to more work to make to make sure that that was a very general purpose system that the system can deal with any number of of switchable characters. Right, the the engine can deal with one character. It could deal with ten switchable characters if we wanted to. So it's just that kind of architecting where things are just um, very flexible. So that's that's mostly all done in in just the scripts part. Yeah, of it. in the scripts. Yeah, the scripts set up you know, who the selectable characters are and the engine, there's a lot of hooks in the engine where the engine will call into script code and then scripts can make, you know, uh, game specific decisions about things before the engine goes off and does anything. Okay. Soon asks, will puzzles in hard mode and easy mode differ like they did in Monkey Island 2 or will some puzzles just be skipped? I liked that playing Monkey Island 2 on easy first made hard mode even harder uh the puzzles in thimbleweed park on in easy mode is we're really just skipping puzzles i don't really remember uh any puzzles in monkey island 2 where they were just completely different puzzles so i'm, I'm pretty sure that we did the same thing in monkey island 2 there may have been one or two but i don't i don't remember them offhand so either a couple i remember there are a couple that we hear that we change slightly if you, there's an object you might have needed but the solution to get the object is easier than it will be in hard mode, the harder mode. Um, and then there's other, like you said, there's whole you know sections of the universe which are gone in easy mode. So you guys should all play it in hard mode. If you're listening to this podcast, you you, you can, I'm sure you could. Well, do I it. imagine, yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably going to play it in hard mode. But you can play it, you know, in, in easy mode or casual mode, as we call it, and then go back and play hard mode and just see all these different puzzles that you didn't know existed the first time. Okay, Christian asks, given more money or time, would there be any chance of an even bigger world? Could this game theoretically be even bigger? I don't think we would want to make the world any bigger. I think I think there's this point where if the world gets too big you just start to lose yourself in it and not you know, not in a good way. So I, I think I think in some ways even this game is a little bit too big. I think you know, we could have trimmed it down a little bit and kinda of made things kinda of move along at a little little you know, clippier of a pace. But it's I mean it's I I, I wouldn't have trimmed it very much, but I, I don't think I would have wanted to have made the world bigger than it is. I mean, there are some rooms that we chopped pretty early. You know, after we did our puzzles, we saw that you know, there was no use for that room. When I look at it in the context of, you know, I'm going to use the word similar types of games, this is a pretty big game. I don't think it needs to be much bigger than it is. Yeah, for, for an adventure game, certainly an adventure game built today, it's a very, very large game. Well, let me you know, switch the question up a little bit. You know, if we had more time or money... Is there anything you would have done differently? If we had more time and money? Yeah. I guess they're kind of the same thing, time and money. Well, I, you know, I think what I said in the earlier question, hired more people, you know, would have, would have definitely had another game programmer on and would have had a sound person from day one and a producer from day one. I think those are the types of things that I would have done, but I don't think I would have done anything where we just spent more money and made the game bigger in any way. You know, having more, you know, special case animation would have been nice. I mean, although we have quite a bit of it, you know, more more of that stuff is good. And that's, you know, just hiring another animator. Carl asks, can you talk a little on how you approach puzzle complexity? That is, determining whether a puzzle is too hard or perhaps too easy. Several times during the development process, you mentioned providing more clues to make some puzzles easier. And given that the play life of an adventure game is dependent on the time it takes the player to solve the puzzles, it seems you need to walk a fine line between too much hand-holding and alienating players frustrated by difficult puzzles. Yeah, I think, you know, what was said earlier about providing more clues to make the puzzles easier, I don't, I don't think it's a matter of making the puzzles easier. I think it's providing more clues to make the puzzles clearer. So the players have a clear idea of what they should be accomplishing in things. I think that's really the goal. You know, anytime you're doing a puzzle and you're deciding how much information to give people, you know, it's it's not so much because I think if you if you take a puzzle and you just withhold information, you're not making the puzzle harder. You're making the puzzle more frustrating for people. But in terms of figuring out the complexity 
of that. I think a lot of it, I think that's true of all three of us. It's just, there's, there's so much gut instinct with, you know, having designed so many puzzles, just kind of realizing, oh, well, you know, we think this is going to be an easy puzzle or we think this is, you know, going to be a hard puzzle. And then you just have to play test it. Yeah. You know, you watch people because there were certainly people when we play tested where I thought this was going to be a super easy puzzle and people struggled with it or vice versa. I thought this was going to be a really hard puzzle. And, you know, you watch several people just blow through it without thinking about it. So play testing, I think, is really the only way that you can really figure out puzzle difficulty. Right. You can have a sense, too, is whether the puzzle might be fun or not. Like, does this feel like this is the first idea we came up with or um, can we push ourselves a little more to come up with something more interesting? Yeah. Puzzles where you just have to walk around the world are boring. You know, I think those are like the, you know, in, in RPG games, it's like the fetch quests, the quests where it's really just having to walk into town and get something. Those are really just kind of boring. And there certainly are, you know, the, the equivalent of that in, in puzzle design is just boring puzzles because you're just kind of having to go through this busy work to solve the puzzle as opposed to something that's kind of challenging your brain. So I think what ideal puzzle is one where there's, you know, it could be an intuitive solution. I mean, you actually can think of the solution without having to get really frustrated. And when you come up with a solution, because you're clever, you can congratulate yourself and, and feel like, you know, there's a big aha moment and you really like it. Yeah, I think the aha moment, I mean, that's the thing that we talk about a lot in puzzle design is, you know, does this puzzle have an aha moment where, you know, we've kind of given you all the clues you need and then you go, oh, of course, that's how you do this. I think that's, you know, kind of what you're striving for. I think puzzles where you reuse items in a way that you didn't use them previously. Like you may have picked up an item and used it one way to solve one puzzle, and then we kind of ask you to use this item again, but in a slightly different but logical way, that those are those are fun and good puzzles. Yeah, that's my favorite type. Evan says, is the Microsoft certification process completed? Did you have to change anything or fix any bugs they discovered? Well, we just went into the cert process on Wednesday. And it, you know, it, it takes, you know, two to three weeks to get all the way through the cert. So it's not finished at all because we just went in it. And Microsoft during the cert process, they're not bug testing. You know, they're not, they're not going through looking to make sure you don't have bugs, although they will report them if they find them. But they're looking at more kind of technical issues with their platform is, you know, do you have all your achievements set up correctly? And, you know, if you up unplug controllers at, at weird times, does the game respond correctly to it? And, and just kind of going through and, and just making sure everything, you know, looks and feels right, you know, according to their platform. So they're not really doing bug testing per se, but it, it'll, it'll probably take two or three weeks to get through that process. And we just entered it a couple of days ago. Michael Hoffman asks, could you elaborate about the arcade room that was left out of the game? When will it be patched in? Are there any other patches planned? Uh, the, well, the arcade game, it's like, you know, there's what, six different arcade games in there, right, David? Mm -hmm. Yeah, six of them. And we kind of always planned that they would be playable, that there would be little mini games, um, you know, kind of, you know, WarioWare style games that you could play on them. But we also knew that that if anything, you know, push came to shove and we were running out of time, that that was something that we would, you know, cut from the game. And so it's kind of always been on the cutting block for that for that stuff. And so we decided, you know, we were running out of time to just not do them. But, but we plan on doing them in a patch. So there'll be a free patch. You know, I don't want to give any dates on when that'll come out, but I don't think it'll be too long. Um, but the other problem was that it used to be that you could go into the arcade and it just says the arcade machines, you know, were broken or didn't work. Um, but we found through playtesting that that was really distracting because people had spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get the arcade games working again. And there was a little um, token dispenser that would actually dispense tokens that you couldn't do anything with. And people were confusing them for money. And so we just said, you know what, we're just going to lock the doors to the arcade so in the shipped version you can't even get into the arcade and then when we patch it when the arcade games are working then we'll um, unlock the doors someone 
asks, you developed uh, Thimbleweed Park with no hardware limitations. You had unlimited amount of RAM and disk space. After finishing, was this a good or bad thing? Sometimes hardware limitations could be beneficial for the design because you have to cut some elements, and it could be a funny and interesting challenge to write an adventure game for the Amiga or the Commodore 64. And then Uli Kirster kind of comments on that, or taking a step back, is that true? Did you feel like you had no limitations? If not, how were your limitations different from the old days, TM? Well, I certainly like not having technical limitations. I mean, there is some truth that limitations um, can actually be good. And I think in any creative medium, limitations can be good. But I don't know that the amount of RAM space and the amount of disk space is a useful limitation. And I, and I was just really glad to just not not have those. Um, but it's, I mean, it's not really true that we have, you know, unlimited amount of RAM and disk space. While that may be true, you know, on the PC platforms is definitely not true on the mobile platforms. And, you know, having unlimited amount of space for these games is going to make porting a little bit harder to do because we are going to have to go back and, and figure out how to, you know, crunch things down into the available amount of memory. So we'll definitely spend a little more time on ports than we would than we would have had we had the limitations to start with. But at the end of the day, I think it just makes everything go faster to not have those. So I would not want to have those kind of limitations. Do I have to go like to lunch to wait for the thing to assemble, Ron? <laughs> no, and that was definitely true. Like in Monkey mm -hmm. Island, you know, we 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 do kind of emerge at the end of the day and then start the thing compiling and we'd all go out and have dinner because it was it was just gonna take hours to compile the game. Where right now you know, the game compiles in like, you know, five or six seconds. Obviously, we mentioned before that the, the limitation really was more time and budget. Yeah, and that's that's the limitation that we have right now is time and budget. Right. Whereas we didn't have that before. We just had like 3K to fit it in. Yeah, well, we had 3K and then we had Star Wars money. <laughs> so that's kind of the, that's the flip. <laughs> do, do you, have you found on during the, the ports to mobile yet any places where it just doesn't work because of memory constraints? No, we've done the first port to mobile. So the game runs on the, on iOS and it runs on Android, but you know, we haven't played the game for more than a half hour. So I don't, I don't really know where those weird bottlenecks are. I mean, I kind of know, you know, watching the PC game get played and I, you know, I kind of understand, you know, where the memory kind of climbs up to, and I know that that is just way too high for mobile. So I think it's going to be an interesting process to go in and look at all that stuff. I got to see um, Chief show me it playing on an iPhone. Oh, yeah. He, he brought that. Yeah, it's, it's really neat, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You can see a few things where you need to, to adjust. Like I thought, at least for my eyesight, some of the fonts maybe were too small. And, and... Yeah, the, font, the fonts were too small. And um, I want to do some stuff with, with dragging. And we also, we register clicks right now in the system on mouse down as opposed to mouse up. But on the mobile thing, you really want to register the clicks when your finger comes off the screen, not when your finger goes on the screen. So there's just little things like that with the UI that we need to, we need to do as well. Yeah, but it was really smooth. And, and because the screen size is so small comparatively, um, it wasn't very pixelated. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> we have to go back and make the make the pixels make bigger. even bigger pixels. <laughs> yeah, we'll tell Mark to redraw the screens <laughs> with bigger pixels. Okay, next question is from Pret. Are you open to fan translation? Obviously, you can't support all languages in the world, or can you? I would appreciate it if lo local files are open and friendly to non-Latin characters. Yeah, we really want to do support uh, fan translations of the game, and that is basically working right now. Although you, you, w when the game first ships, it won't support fan translations. There is a little bit of work I need to do, so it'll probably be like in the in the first patch that we do that we'll have the fan translations uh, be supported. But but it is you know, even the translators that are translating the game, and they're basically using that system. You know where they can stick the files in, you know, different directories, and the game just you know is able to suck them in and do the translations. 
uh, doing non, um, you know, non-Latin characters, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. We just started doing the Russian translation. The game won't ship with the Russian translation. That'll, you know, probably come out a few weeks later. But, you know, that that has been a little bit of an experience just because, you know, it, it uses, you know, it has to use its own font. And so I've just kind of been going through some issues with that. But I think even for fan translations, I think the biggest thing that I do I need to figure out is how to deal with the font issue. Because we use like eight different fonts in the game and some of them are hand-drawn bitmap fonts and the other other ones are kind of um you know true type fonts that have been mechanically converted into bitmap fonts but we don't actually use any true type fonts in the game so it's not as easy as just dropping in another font um, but it's certainly possible um, it's probably just going to be a little more work for somebody who's doing a fan translation because they're going to have to do all the work to drop in the new fonts as well as the the actual text of course they pro- i assume that the fan translations would not have um image changes so yeah. like the 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 yeah, they text, wouldn't. text on the images or, or signage or whatever won't change yeah that's that stuff would not change and the last question we have is from Alan Shutko. I'm used was awesome, but it seems to have been a dead end in game development. Why didn't it ever why didn't it ever catch on? Well, I think there were two reasons that I'm used didn't catch on. I mean, certainly Lucasfilm used it, you know, long after, you know, Monkey Island 2, which well, was the first game. I probably, probably should say what it is for those who don't know for I'm used. Well, why would anybody be listening to this podcast that didn't know what IMUSE was? <laughs> they can look it just look it up in Wikipedia. Yeah, just go to Wikipedia if you don't know what IMUSE is. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I personally, I think there were two reasons that IMUSE didn't see a lot of use. Um, you know, after you know, kind of the first few games after after Monkey Island Two, is one is it was just a lot of work to do. You know, it's it's just the the amount of work that it took to get a really really good um, iMuse implementation was just gigantic. Uh, the other reason is I think that not soon after that we kind of had this emergence of digital music, where you know you could really just record music and put it into the game. And iMuse is really meant uh, with music that you could really control everything almost note by note which you really couldn't do as well with digital music. You can certainly do that type of stuff, and you see a little bit of that you know, in some of the features that FMOD has with music, but just not to the level that, that iMuse could. So I think it was maybe a combination of those two things. And I think also Lucasfilm patented it, and I think that was kind of a weird mistake on their part because I don't think they ever did anything with the patent. They certainly never sold it or licensed it or made money off of it. And I think all it really did was it just stifled any innovation in that kind of whole field of interactive music. And I muse you know specifically it was MIDI music. It wasn't no, it wasn't I don't think it was actual MIDI music. I think it was its own weird little format. I mean all the music was composed in MIDI, but it wasn't it wasn't playing it as actual MIDI though. Well, are we done? Yeah. I think oh, we're done. We've been recording oh. for an hour and a hour and a half or no hour and Yeah. An hour and eleven minutes. Twelve minutes almost. Yeah. Now this is going to be a, a not fun podcast to edit. Another thing, Ron, another thing, Ron should have been able to hire somebody to do for him. Yes, delegating the podcast, <laughs> right? Because Ron has to basically edit the whole thing and put it up and everything, and that takes hours. Well, this will probably take three, at least three, maybe four hours to completely edit. Yeah, the the podcast is is definitely something I wish I I could have delegated to someone else. Okay. Well, I think that's okay. it. All hey, right. See you. See you all. And I guess the next time we talk to you, the game should be released. In terms of the the, the questions. Yeah, actually, the next Friday questions podcast will be after the game is released. So people people keep asking, are we going to keep doing you know supporting the blog and the podcast after we ship the game? Do you have an answer? No, I'm gonna the the day after the game ships, I'm gonna delete the blog. <laughs> 
But I, I do think, though, it would be fun. Maybe not right after the game ship, and maybe like two weeks after the game ship. We should definitely do a Friday questions. Yeah, that makes sense because people actually they will have when when people have played the game, yeah, and they can actually ask questions that are very specifically. Ron, why did you think? Ron, why did you think this was funny? <laughs> this was the stupidest puzzle I've ever seen. You swore you'd never do another monkey wrench puzzle, but here it is. <laughs> No spoilers. <laughs> okay, okay, I think we're done. Okay. All right, okay, see bye. you guys later. Bye-bye. You going to read the questions today? Um, I hate reading the questions. I, I could do them. Okay. Okay. Boy, Gary and I said that fast. Okay. <laughs> hey, man. D- Dave, David volunteered. Like I don't have enough to carry already. Ah, Fred. Won't you ever stop fighting about it? Oh, hello, Sheriff. Am I glad to see you?